It's only 14 verses long, but we'll save half of it for this evening probably. So let's read the first seven verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, the first seven verses. We are trying to establish the fact that the epistle of Peter was written to the Hebrew church, members of the Hebrew church. They had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but in relation to his coming as king to the nation of Israel, not in relation to Christ as Lord and Savior or Lord and head of the body, because this particular church, the Hebrew church, is another group entirely, and they've been blessed with a calling, but it's not the same calling as our heavenly calling, that is the earthly calling, a calling anticipating the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on this earth for a millennium. Well, we know that the people of Israel did not accept it, and God turned his back upon them as they were presented with the amnesty throughout the entire book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 28, we find that God turned his back upon them in favor of uh, disclosing the glorious mystery, which was first uh, revealed to the Apostle Paul as early as his own personal uh, uh, salvation and calling and commissioning. And then we find it given to us more fully after Israel was set aside and when God could put all of his attention upon the Gentile world, as it were, including individual Jews who also could be brought into the body of Christ through faith in the Lord Jesus and his finished work. We have been calling these particular epistles since we started with the book of James and we're going to go right through the book of Jude. We have called them the circumcision epistles because the apostles of the circumcision are responsible for the writing of them and the people of Israel, these circumcision are the recipients of these particular letters. And in order to help people to see that these epistles are not church epistles, Paul is not writing them, they have nothing to do with the revelation of the mystery. They have everything to do with the earthly calling and not the heavenly calling. We have been calling these books the circumcision epistles and that's the reason why. I want to read seven verses, please, in 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre's sake, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Now we know that there are many statements in the epistles of the circumcision which sound as though uh, they were taken from the epistles of uh, Paul to the church, the body of Christ. But that's simply because we have the same God to deal, that we are dealing with. And there are many things in God's attitudes and in God's character, of course, that has to be the same regardless of what people he might be dealing with. So there are some statements, of course, that are there because of the unchanging holiness of God, the unchanging attributes of God, and therefore we would expect holiness from both classes of people, the church, the body of Christ, and the Hebrew church. 
And there are other things that are quite similar, but then again there are many, many things that differ, and that's where it comes in handy to know how to rightly divide the word of truth and never to approach the word of God without seeking to do that. Now here in uh, verse uh, 1 we have proof of the authorship and uh, of this particular epistle, and that is Peter. And of course we have proof of the fact that he is a an apostle of the circumcision, and we are reminded immediately in verse 5 of two things that were true of the apostles of the circumcision, and that is, first of all, they were to be a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also they had already witnessed something in relation to the glory that was to follow. You have that in verse 5. The elders which are among you I exhort who am also an elder, now there is a mistaken notion in a lot of uh, denominations today that because of the way verse 1 of verse five, uh, chapter 5 is written that the Apostle Peter says he's an elder along with the elders in that church that every preacher regardless of who he is as long as he's been ordained to preach he immediately becomes an elder and that's not the case at all. We have a lot of young men who are preaching just gotten out of the Bible schools and out of the seminaries that they are not elders. You can't make elders out of them. It takes a bit of gray hair and it takes a bit of years and experience and growth and grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ to create an elder or to see the qualifications of an elder in a person. And so we want to shatter that idea to begin with that every preacher is not an elder. But there are churches around here today who will point to their pastor as being the chief elder and all the rest may be deacons but the only elder they've got is that man in the pulpit. He may be 25, but he's an elder, according to their thinking, and that's not right. That's not scriptural. But Peter was old enough to be an elder, and so were these elders old enough to be elders, and that's why they were, and that's why he was. So with that set aside, I want to say this. It says, Who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now there are two things that made an, a, a, a circumcision apostle, and that was, uh, they had to be a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and secondly, they had to know something about the glory that should follow. You remember, you read about that in the 24th chapter of the book of Luke, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And uh, they were, uh, of course, uh, trained to know these two things, and we want to look at the first thing first. They were a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, is never claims to be a witness of the sufferings of Christ where he was at the time that Christ was uh, uh, crucified and where he uh, at the time that he died on the cross if my memory serves me right and it's not serving me too well right now but uh, here if we turn back to the book of Acts when there was a need for a scripture to be fulfilled in relation to Judas's uh, having committed suicide and he was numbered among the apostles you know he was one of the twelve and then there was a prophecy said that that said that uh, somebody had to take Judas's place all right in Acts chapter 1 you've got the appointment of that man to take Judas's place and then they are very careful to state what qualifications there must be in relation to the person that they are considering for an appointee to take Judas's uh, place. All right, in verse twenty, uh, in verse twenty of Acts chapter one, it says, "For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation, that is speaking about Judas, be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and let his bishopric let another take." 
Now they are about to pray that this might take place and they are looking for guidance from God to show them who it is that God has in his mind to take his place. Now a lot of people have mistakenly put the Apostle Paul in that place. I once thought that was true too, but I was listening to uh, other men, how they uh, wrongly divide the word of truth. And listening too much to these men, I got to a lot of wrong conclusions. Now we find that God has a man, and it's not the Apostle Paul. Paul was not one of the circumcision apostles. His apostleship was vastly different. It was based on different qualifications entirely. And we find that he is an apostle of the Gentiles, and not the only one, as so many people like to think. So the Apostle Paul is not one of the twelve, and he is not just number thirteen of the same group as number twelve, only expanding on that group and adding one to it. And he is not just one of the New Testament apostleship, because there are about eight that you can identify in the New Testament, and seven linked up with the Apostle Paul who would make eight, and these are the apostles to the Gentile uh, church. We might call it Gentile because it's made largely up of Gentiles, but we should call it the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. But look at the qualifications one must have before he can be expected to be appointed for this apostleship. In verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So that's the last three and a half years, isn't it? Beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed to Joseph called Barsabbas, uh, and who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now that makes the twelve. Never put Paul in there for the twelve, and don't think that ex there was an expansion of that apostleship, and to include Paul as one of the twelve, or making him number thirteen. Now, all kinds of mistakes are being made simply because man has not uh, been geared up to what Paul teaches us is necessary to know something about the Word of God in uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, and that is we've got to rightly divide the Word of Truth. That God's Word give, will give us the answers to any problems that we might have, and we better turn to that Word rightly divided. And when we turn to it rightly divided, we are going to find the answer to the problems. All right, now, they are also to be a witness, well, they didn't have to be, but the Apostle Peter was one of the three that was a witness of the glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ, that glory which should follow. You say, how is that? That glory has not yet been in evidence. That's going to be a glory that will be revealed in the future, according to Matthew chapter 24. But we forget sometimes that in Matthew chapter 17, and in, and in the Gospel of Luke as well. But in Matthew chapter 17, will you turn with me please to that scripture? We have this wonderful scene, the transfiguration that took place on the mount. And this was in order to teach these particular apostles. And there are three of them now. That's Peter, James, and John, the three main ones. And we find that the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed to them. And in a wonderful way identified also by God the Father... Uh, that is, the Lord Jesus was identified vocally, verbally, by God the Father at that particular scene on the mountain. 
And here it says in chapter 17 and verse 1 of Matthew's gospel, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make there here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now that was a wonderful thing that took place up there. But what is it that God is trying to teach these three men, Peter, James, and John? Well, Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 1, will you turn now to Second Peter chapter 1, and you will find Peter's explanation of what took place in the Mount of Transfiguration. As I said, you can turn to the Bible and get all the answers to your problems, but the Bible naturally has to be rightly divided. In 2 Peter chapter 1 at verse 16, Peter is writing and he says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. They were probably accused of following cunningly devised fables. Like if today if a preacher wants you to preach nothing else but the word of God rightly divided, a lot of bad things will be said about that particular person. Oh, he doesn't even believe in water baptism, for instance, you know. Well, I believe in the one baptism, and that's what the Apostle Paul believed in in, first, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5. He believed in one, and that's the one I believe in, because only by that one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, can we be identified the rest of our life and throughout all eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ and His body. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse uh, 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we may know unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, aren't they wonderful words? These words are given to Peter to be written down for the benefit of the Hebrew church, and they show the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they are getting a picture of what's going to take place in the future when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in great power and great glory to this earth and to the nation of Israel in order to set up the millennial reign. I want to read that 16th verse again before we get into verse 17. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to add to it. You don't have to put any fancy thinking onto that. It's very plainly stated. And it says, uh, But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard, when we were with them in the holy mount. So he identifies the place to be exactly the same place as Matthew chapter 17, where we just read a few moments ago. So we find that the Apostle Peter was not only one of the twelve, who happened to be a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but he was one of three very special uh, apostles who were privileged to witness the power and the majesty and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in relation, always remember, to the people of Israel. He is not talking about the church which is his body. The Apostle Paul reveals his coming to the church, the body of Christ, as the rapture, 
in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that those scriptures are not to be confused with the coming visibly, physically, bodily uh, to the nation of Israel and to this earth in a future day after God is finished with the present program of the dispensation of grace. And so that's a good way to identify the apostle and the message that he has because God never gave the apostle Peter the, the commission that he gave to the apostle Paul. You never find Peter going out and preaching to anybody the message of reconciliation, which is the commission given to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We find that it's absolutely that Israel shall first uh, be the recipients of Peter's message, and if they reject it, then it is to stop there. But they are not going to, by their rejection, change God's mind about God's uh, desire to bless the Gentile world and therefore he reveals to the Apostle Paul that in the event of Israel's rejection of their responsibility in receiving Christ as their risen Messiah and King, then God will introduce a secret that he had in his mind, which he developed in his mind before the foundations of the world, and that is that the very moment Israel shows defiance and their absolute refusal to accept the message of the amnesty by the Apostle Peter, then Paul is going to be raised up and he will become the Apostle to the Gentiles with a message entirely different than any previous message and will be the message for some 2,000 years. Now isn't that a wonderful thing? That's where the word mystery comes in. Now when you go into the religious world today, what we call the cult of Christendom, and I think that's exactly the way... Uh, uh, Sir Robert Anderson uh, uh, characterizes Christendom today. He calls it the cult of Christendom. You will find that that's not the case. And when you get a preacher today who wants to talk about the Pauline mysteries, they get it all confused with the mysteries of Matthew chapter 13, which is nothing else but a sevenfold mystery of the kingdom of heaven and not of the church, the body of Christ. And we've got to make a difference where God makes a difference and not even to confuse the word mystery. But stay with it as far as Paul's writings are concerned. All right then, going back to chapter 5 and verse 1, we'll read it again. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. That's entirely Jewish all the way through, and it's a wonderful thing. I don't want to steal a thing that be, is part of the inheritance of the nation of Israel. This belongs to them. Let's not rob them of this wonderful truth. If you were to take a, uh, a commentator, and I don't care who's responsible for the writing of that commentator, you will find one word cropping out in almost... In, in the explanation of almost every verse and that is Christian, Christian, Christian one word throughout the whole thing they never tell you that this is for the Hebrew church they never tell you the people to whom the apostle Peter is writing they make everything Christian and it is not Christian when you get into the second verse it says feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof who is to feed the flock of God it is the elders of the Hebrew church they are to continue to do this until God indicates otherwise 
The Apostle Peter knew, I believe, by this time that God was about to indicate otherwise because he gives us an idea in previous chapters in this particular epistle that God is going to bring terrible days upon the nation of Israel, which he did in 70 A.D. Now, this particular letter is written only a few years prior to 70 A.D., and Peter knows about 70 A.D. coming in, uh, in view and therefore he tells them the elders that they are to feed the flock he is not talking about the elders in the church at the present time there are denominations that don't have any elders apart from the man that's in the platform regardless of his youth and that doesn't make him an elder of course and the only officers they have apart from that may be the deacons when the bible does speak of elders and deacons when it comes to uh, the assembly of christians meeting today it says, feed the flock of God which is among you. Now, I like that expression, the flock of God. And may I say to begin with that the flock of God is the Hebrew church. We never find ourselves being called a flock. We never find that the Apostle Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the shepherd of the church, the body of Christ. And when you read the word flock and when you read the word shepherd and sheep, always remember that there is a people that God has in view and that is the Hebrew people. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre's sake, uh, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Now the command to me, feed the flock of God, is a reflection of what took place in Peter's life and is recorded in John chapter 21. Let's turn to that, please. In John chapter 21, God was very, very careful about seeing that his flock was properly fed. We are talking about spiritual food. We are not talking about ham sandwiches or anything. We're talking about what comes from his word by divine inspiration. He wanted his flock to be fed. We find men claiming to be feeders of the flock today, and I don't know what in the world they're feeding because they don't seem to be growing in grace or in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ or in the knowledge of the word rightly divided. Now, John chapter 21 and verse 15, 16, and 17. John 21 at verse 15 says this, So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Now, there's a play on Greek words here, of course. When the Lord Jesus Christ is asking him if he loved him, he is talking about love after a divine type of a love the type of love that God is capable of loving us and of loving the world. And then his answer was, when he said, he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He is simply saying, Lord, thou knowest that I am fond of thee. Well, the Lord wants more than fondness. You can be very fond of a lot of people but not trust them very far in life. But you can be fond of them. There's something about them that's attractive there's something about their makeup, morally, character-wise, or any otherwise, and you find that there's something about them that might create uh, some essence of fondness in them. And then he said unto him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again the second time, Son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he's still saying, Lord, thou knowest that I am fond of thee. And he said unto him, Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved. And now the Lord Jesus is resorting to that other word of love, which is phileo or fun. 
And so we find in verse 17, Jesus is actually saying uh, the third time, Simon, son of Jovis, Jonas, are you fond of me? You see, he's emphasizing it now. That's the only word Peter wants to use. He says, uh, are you fond of me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, uh, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I am fond of thee. Why does he stick to fond? Because he didn't have the nerve to bring in that divine love. Why? Because he had really shamed himself by denying the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason why. And he was thoroughly ashamed of himself. And then in that verse, in verse, uh, uh, verse 17, it says, Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. So here we've got the feeding of the sheep. And there's one thing that's required to properly feed the sheep, and that is love. Uh, and uh, in order to see that people receive the right type of food, if you want to bring that feeding into present-day preaching, you can if you wish, but if we want to stay with the proper interpretation, our present-day preaching is not a matter of feeding the flock. Because feeding the flock, the flock can only be the people of Israel, or shall we say the Hebrew church. But there is something revealed in verse 2 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. And there are a lot of men, I've seen men who have taken the oversight thereof. And my, it was in a very bossy way. You listen to us or else, you know. And their judgments were very severe and very harsh. And it seemed as though they were absolutely devoid of the love that Christ is talking about that should be in a person who assumes to take the oversight thereof. We're still dealing with men, you know. And it says here, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. I think that's a good statement there to make for this reason. The gift of ministry by this time. Now, he is writing somewhere in the 60s A.D., and by this time, according to the Apostle Paul, the gift of ministry, and his ministry is the gift that is here, but we call it the gift of ministry in Paul's letters. And therefore we find that these two may be the same. I am feeding you the Word of God. There's got to be a gift of ministry involved in feeding people the Word of God today, members of the body of Christ. And we find that during those days when these elders among the Hebrew church and assemblies were to feed the flock of God, they were to do it not for filthy lucre's sake. That word sake comes in there, but uh, it's used that way in another place. Not for filthy lucre. That should not be the primary objective on the part of one who seeks to teach the believers and to be honest with them in rightly dividing the word of truth. It shouldn't be to make money on that particular uh, business of serving God in that way. And we find that uh, since then the gift of ministry, if we look at Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17, had really uh, deteriorated to a form of salesmanship, shall I put it that way? Uh, selling a commodity, in other words. Look at it in Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17. Second Corinthians 2:17. We find here it says, For we are not as many. Now Paul is writing about the same time, in the same period, before the Acts period. But he's talking about the body of Christ. He's not talking about the flock of God, the people of Israel. 
But they're both talking, Peter and Paul are both talking about ministry, about feeding. And he says, Paul says this, We are not as many, so there must have been many who are doing this, which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity. He says, we are sincere, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Now, what is it to corrupt the word of God well, if you look over and uh, you don't happen to have a, uh, what is this, a companion Bible as I do, but I'll, I'll read you what it says because I've been taught this before I ever got a companion Bible. It says corrupt, adulterate, that's what the word means. The word kapilos, which occurs once in the Septuagint, means a huckster, a tavern keeper, and then the verb came to mean adulterate. We are not of the many who, like tavern keepers, have a commodity to sell, who are like hucksters who have a commodity to sell. Ah, yes, I'll talk with you if you make sure that you pay me what I'm worth. We have a lot of men going around today through colleges who are uh, politicians and so on, and they have the gift of speech, and they've had a good background behind them of serving the... Uh, Washington, D.C., and so on. They go from college to college, these big ones anyway, and for 25,000 bucks, they'll give you a talk for 45 or 50 minutes. They got a big price on what they know because they do know a lot, and they are an authority on the particular subject that they have to say, that they have to tell. And I'm afraid that we are living in a day when we have preaching for gain. When the whole thing, the whole objective before the preaching is, I want you to make sure you know what I'm worth. And so you strike up a bargain with them. We'll give you a house, we'll give you this automobile, and we'll give you a certain amount of money for uh, spending on the car for the month and so on, and we'll give you this salary and that thing and the other thing. And there's no, there's no contract made, there's nothing signed unless they come to agreement as to how big this thing is going to be. Don't you see what Paul is trying to say? For we are not as many. There were many in that days who were corrupting, they were adulterating, they were taking a commodity which should have been freely dispensed with to all, and they are taking that commodity and putting a price on it that seems ridiculously high, and without it, the individual would not even stoop to serve that congregation or that group of people. Now, that's what Paul is talking about. And I think that's why Peter is referring to, because I dare say that even in Peter's environment of the Hebrew church, he was beginning to see the development of this thing. Maybe the Hebrews got it from the Gentiles, from the body church, or maybe the body church got it from the Hebrew church. I don't know, but you see sometimes things come in and it spreads abroad and so on, and it's really adultering the, adulterating the word of God. Why is it that we have so many preachers who will not go on any farther than they got, got to when they first got into a church? They don't seem to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord because they are usually under the control of a board. And you say what we want you to say and you don't change your mind about anything because when you change your mind, we cease to be what we said we are as, an, as, as, as a church body. And therefore, you can't get some preachers to ever change their mind and change their ways because then they would have to swap churches and think about another church somewhere else and how much money have they got in the pension fund that they might be losing, see? 
And all of this is involved. This is big business today, preaching. Big business. You can uh, be sure of that. Now when we get into verse 3, it says, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples of the flock. Now God's heritage, who is God's heritage? Well, there may be a sense in which the church is God's heritage. But what about the Hebrew church? Is there any indication that they might be? I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20. You learn an awful lot in the book of Deuteronomy about the Hebrew church back in those days and how they were tempted to go into the world and accept the gods of the nations and things like that. But God always looked at the people of Israel as his inheritance. And uh, that was a wonderful thing. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20. That the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as ye are this day. Now that's not the only place. You can find scriptures like this throughout the word of God. That the people of Israel, they are the flock of God. Remember that. You must remember that the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament is called the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 80 and verse 1. He's the shepherd of Israel. So let's not make him the shepherd of the church. You see, that's rightly dividing and so here we find in the book of Deuteronomy that if you want to know whose God's, who's God's heritage might be, then you will see that it is the people of Israel. They are both the flock of God that's to be fed, and they are God's heritage, according to verse uh, four or verse three of First uh, Peter chapter five. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples of the flock. Examples of the flock. That's what. The body of Christ needs, and that's what the Hebrew church needed. Examples of the flock. And then when you get into verse 5, uh, verse 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, we shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. I think that's about as far as we can go, the chief shepherd. Now, who is the chief shepherd? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 80 and verse 1 again, He is the shepherd of Israel. You ought to read that verse. And he's the only shepherd of Israel. All the rest of those who seek to be shepherds are under shepherds. These elders were under shepherds, and it was their business to feed the flock of God. Now, as far as Israel is concerned, you remember in John chapter 10, verse 11, verse 11 the Bible says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. The good shepherd, in other words, is good because he died for the sheep. Those sheep are not the body of Christ. We thank God in the more expansive message of the mystery of this particular dispensation. We can see how all the world was involved. And we can see how members of the body of Christ were involved in the death of Christ. But not when Peter went out as an apostle of the circumcision, going only to the nation of Israel, not allowed to go to the Gentile world nor to the Samaritans, according to verse 5, of Matthew chapter 10, but we find that they had to restrain themselves from going beyond the Israelitish nation. And here we find that now, as he is called the chief shepherd, I want you to notice that he is called 
three kinds of shepherds in the scriptures and always in relation to the Hebrew church. We find in John chapter 10 and verse 11, as I mentioned, he's the good shepherd because he gives his life for the church. And then there is a wonderful scripture in Hebrews chapter 13. I would like to have given that this morning in our Bible class as one of my favorite verses, but then I thought I'd give it now instead. And I gave a different one at that time. Hebrews, let's look at that. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. It is a wonderful doxology in the book of Hebrews. And remember, the people who are acquainted with that kind of a doxology happen to be the Hebrew church, not the church which is his body. Hebrews 13.20 says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep. Now, if he was the good shepherd because he gave his life for the sheep, why is he the great shepherd? Simply because he sustains the life of the sheep. He gives and gives and gives again, and there's no stopping of his giving in order that those sheep might be his for all eternity. The great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, there he is, the great shepherd. Well, if you want to, you can apply that to us. He is the giver of our eternal life through faith in him. He is the sustainer of that life because apart from his intercession at the Father's right hand, we could not hold on to our eternal life for one moment. We are that much of a failure by ourselves without, without his intercession, which is, goes on moment after moment after hour by hour, year by year, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And if he were ever to let go of his work of intercession, according to Romans chapter 8, where it says, who also maketh intercession for us. If he were ever to sustain or to, uh, to, to stop that work, just for a moment, you and I wouldn't be sure for that moment that we'd ever get to heaven. It's all based on him. And then we find finally that he is called the chief shepherd and that's in the scripture we have in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, and when the chief shepherd shall appear. Why is he called the chief shepherd? Because he's going to come for his sheep. That is, he is going to come and gather together all of his sheep of that sheepfold of that earthly inheritance of his he is going to gather them all out of all of the nations and put them where he be they belong. And that's the only piece of land in all the world that God says, my land is his. And it's his to do with whatever he wants to do. We know there are Arabs in that land, but those Arabs have to go out someday. Now you mind, you take my word for it, or take the, the scriptural word for it. All the, Gent all the Israelites who are now living in Gentile territories will be gathered out of those territories after this dispensation of grace is over with. And when the Lord Jesus returns, he's going to gather all of his sheep, all of his inheritance, all of his flock out of all of the Gentile countries and bring them where they belong in their inheritance, which is the land of Palestine, which is what Abba Iban calls Judea. That's how they would prefer calling it because Palestine reminds them too much of Gentiles. In those four verses, you have four wonderful verses. When you rightly divide them, you get a lot more out of it than when you just take men's word for it.
Just get into the Word and see what the Word has to say. The Bible is the Bible's best commentary. And these are wonderful verses. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. He is not talking about the elders of the church, the body of Christ. He's talking about the elders of the Hebrew church. And to them, he is going to give an unfading blessing. That which that phrase, that fadeth not away, you remember we had that in First Peter chapter 1. Uh, let's see, in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. And so many people take that verse as meaning only the body church because it says reserved in heaven. Well, you know, if Christ is the embodiment of Israel's inheritance and if he's up there in heaven, don't you see how that everything that's going to come to them in the future is reserved in that wonderful person up there? He is the embodiment of every blessing of the nation of Israel. And that's what it means when it says reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God ready to be revealed unto the last days or the last times. May the Lord bless these thoughts if you have any ideas that wanting to be saved by the grace of God or having a, want a greater knowledge of your having been accepted, look at Christ as being Israel's good shepherd and see what he done in order he did for them on Calvary's cross in order that they might be saved and redeemed and become his for all eternity. You can, through the same death of Christ on the cross, simply look away to Calvary. See him as dying in your place. See yourself as the one for whom Christ died and accept him as your personal Savior. And you'll be saved for all eternity. May the Lord bless his word to us this morning. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity, and peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Going back to verse 5, 6, and 7, we have three verses that would suggest the type of conduct and attitude toward each other as well as attitude toward themselves as individuals that these people are to exercise during the time of their sojourn while they're in Gentile territory. And of course, this is really looking forward to the future as well when they're going to be in Gentile territory because they won't be have been gathered out of all nations under heaven in the future until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So a lot of the Jews will be in Gentile territories and uh, they have to show their humility and uh, a proper attitude toward themselves and toward others and conduct themselves properly, properly in order they might, that they might show by their walk on whose side they are. And that would be on the side of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
there will be many kings of many nations in which uh, they would be, will be living at that time. But we find that there is one king supreme above all kings as far as these Jews are concerned, and that's the Messiah. Now that doesn't mean that all these Jews who are in Gentile territories in the future, or even in Peter's day, are saved or will be saved. We find that that's not the case at all, because they have to repent and be baptized in order to enter into the type of salvation that's being offered by the Apostle Peter, and the same offer will be made in the future undoubtedly, because when you finish this dispensation of grace, then the opening dispensation immediately following will be the kingdom dispensation, dispensation, which will be a carryover from that which was broken off in Acts chapter 28. That's when it will come back together again. So if you want to take everything concerning the Apostle Paul and the dispensation of grace, move it out and bring the two points together again, the people of Israel and the kingdom possibilities and you will see that God will have one purpose but then it's going to be brought to fruition in the future and so he tells them about the necessity of being subject one to another the elder to the younger and the younger to the elder so that there can be uh, a nice getting along with each other as a good testimony because some of them will have to publicly profess that they believe in Christ as the Messiah and they are looking forward to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to be uh, coronated in a future time and therefore it would be so necessary to be uh, proper in their conduct. So beginning with verse 8 it says be sober, be vigilant. That, that vigilance is nothing else but be in an attitude or a spirit of wakefulness. Uh, the time of sleepiness or spiritual drowsiness uh, will have, uh, should be over by this time, and we know that as far as the church is concerned, we might say as we look at it today, as represented in Christendom, there's a good deal of drowsiness, there's a good deal of sleepiness among those who profess to be Christian. But uh, it's time for us too, of course, according to verse 8, if we apply ourselves to this, it's time for us to be sober and be vigilant. And then it says, Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about whom he may, uh, seeking whom he may devour. Your adversary, the devil. Now don't put the church in there. I know we have an adversary, and that adversary is the devil. But you have to remember and keep this in mind that we are interpreting these scriptures. We are not taking every chapter and forgetting the interpretation of it, just making application as though the application were the interpretation, because those two methods of explaining scripture, two different methods entirely. The adversary of the Jewish people is the devil, there's no doubt about it. Now the Greek word for adversary is antidikos, A-N-T-I-D-I-K-O-S. It's used in the Gospel of Matthew at chapter 5 verse 25 where it speaks of a person who might rise up against another person in court as an opponent in a lawsuit. And uh, if you keep that in mind, it has to do with legal matters, an opponent in a lawsuit. Now, this may be its implication even in this particular scripture, since Satan is presented in scripture as an opponent in the legal matter of one's right to have a standing before God in spite of his sin that Satan uh, knows all about and that he would like to bring up before God in the, in the future as he does try to do at the present time. 
Now you take Zechariah chapter 3, please, next to the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3 and verse 1, and we find the adversary at work there in relation to the nation of Israel again. And Satan will continue to be Israel's adversary, but don't forget, don't let your own guard down, because what Satan will accomplish or try to accomplish with Israel, and has accomplished with them, you will see that uh, he will try to accomplish with us. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1 said, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Now why do you suppose Satan was there? He was there as an adversary in a legal matter. What he's trying to say is, you are the judge of all the earth. Here's Joshua standing before you, but look at the way he's dressed. He is supposed to be a high priest. Now, is a high priest supposed to be dressed in filthy garments? Those filthy garments represent sin, bad conduct, and so on. And Joshua was guilty of that, just as we are guilty of bad conduct from time to time. And Satan knows all about it. And you must remember that there is every possibility that every day in the week Satan has a way of approaching God or making his voice to be known as an opponent in, the, in, the, in a legal matter and says, what right has this person got to be accepted of you? Now, I've noticed his life in the past 24 hours. I know something of his thoughts. I've seen his thoughts give way to action and so on. And sure, they don't sure convince him to be a believer in Christ. We give him a voice against us, not that it's going to mean anything, but as far as the day in which the Apostle Peter is writing, it can mean something then, and we'll get into that shortly. Now when you go back to the book of Job, you will find again the adversary, and he's always been busy, and Job is, one, uh, is possibly the first book that's ever been written, even prior to the books of Moses. And uh, in the book of Job and chapter 1, you have a very interesting thing brought before us. And remember that even though Job is the oldest book of the Bible and is believed to be the oldest book, it's given by divine inspiration. Job chapter 1 at verses 6, 7, and 8, and this is what it says. Job 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now it's a question as to who the sons of God were. They can be saints, they can be the children of God, and they can also be angels. Now when Satan comes before them, I would prefer to believe that they were saints for the simple reason that he would like to come before them in order to think over their lives and try to uh, charge God with with uh, some action which is contrary to his holiness and in publicly declaring that these people have a standing before him in spite of his holiness and in spite of their sin. So in verse 7 it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then, answered, then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And I'm quite sure he would have to say yes to these uh, wonderful things that God says about Job. 
But God isn't satisfied that Job should have such a good, clean record. He says, let me put him to the test. I'll break him down for you. And that's what Job is all about, the test that Satan put him through under God's divine permission. His wife weakened under that test, but he didn't weaken. It looked as though he was about to weaken, but really he was a righteous man. And that was a wonderful thing to be said. So in these two scriptures, we have something of what it means when God says that Satan is an adversary. He's your adversary too, don't forget that. He's going to take every ad advantage of pointing out the spots and the blemishes in your testimony and conduct, and he will bring that before God and ask God the reason why he still has anything to do with you and me, as far as that goes. All right, now Paul reminds us, and again I want to say us, not the Hebrew people, because Paul's message is to the church, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, part of that verse says this, to give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So Satan would like to speak reproachfully as far as you are concerned in the presence of God. That's what Paul says concerning us. Give none occasion for the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. Now it's possible for a believer to turn aside after Satan without losing their salvation. And we find that it's very easy to turn aside after Satan. All we have to do is lend them our ear, give them a little bit of the affection that belongs to the Lord, and, and uh, not to properly identify Satan as the one who is putting thoughts and ideas in your head and in your mind, thinking maybe that's what the Holy Spirit would have you to do. So mistaken identity sometimes will cause you to be turned aside after Satan when if you really knew the identity of the person who was working on you, you would run for your life. And that's how it goes. So in this uh, lovely verse of verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now I remember when that verse first came to my attention after I was saved. I saw, of course, back in that day, as today, you've got the usual line of things brought before you. They say, well, don't worry about that verse, because it says there, walking about seeking whom he may devour, which would suggest that he needs permission to devour you before he will devour you. And he'll never get that, uh, that permission, so all of his efforts are going to be lost. In other words, don't worry about Satan as your adversary because he can never devour you. Now that's not fair. That's only when you see the church in that scripture. But suppose if you see the real people in that scripture, then you have to look at it just a little differently. So to these Hebrew people, he is saying, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So apparently he knows that he can devour some of those people. Well, who are they that he can devour? All of those people of Israel, you must remember, they are children of the covenant. They have a relationship to God which is not equivalent to salvation. You have to remember that because God is offering salvation to them through the apostle Peter. And if they are already saved and beyond hope of being lost again, there would be no salvation offered at Pentecost. But Peter is offering salvation. You remember Acts 4 and verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. This morning we had a scripture in the book of Hebrews. I think we had that one in, in uh, this morning's class. In Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, at verse 3, I want you to look at that. 
A lot of people don't understand the position that Hebrews chapter 2 should have historically. I remember I used to quote this because big shots around the world quoted it. Big uh, fundamentalists used to quote this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Well, you can use it from a, an application point of view, but if you want to interpret that scripture, give it back to the people to whom it belongs. It belongs to the Hebrews. So in verse 3 it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so, neglect so great salvation? Now who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Hebrews. What is this so great salvation? The same one that's referred to in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. It's being saved from the possibility of being lost forever. forever. Although they, the nation of Israel as a nation are children of the covenant, they have come to a crisis in their national life. Most of the people of Israel have agreed through their elders, through the people that ought to have known better, agreed to crucify the Lord of life and glory. Now the whole nation stands guilty for that particular action. That's why Peter is only talking to the people of Israel and not to the Gentiles. And we are told time and again that uh, Peter is talking to everybody, whosoever wills, and he's talking to everybody and trying to tell them they are all guilty of the death of Christ. God never places the guilt of the death of Christ on the cross at the door of the Gentile nations because God was not then dealing with the nations at all. It was not up to the nations to answer the question, what will you then do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? And for this reason, we find that uh, the people of Israel had salvation offered to them. The nation became guilty before God by taking uh, with their vile hands the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and committing him to the death of, of the cross. So here in this verse it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord? Now, can you continue to put our salvation in that? You cannot. The only message that our Lord Jesus Christ gave, which was a message of salvation, verbally with his own lips was the message of the gospel of the kingdom it was a gospel it was an offer of salvation and then through the apostle Peter we find that salvation was being offered to that nation because they had come to a crisis in their national experience and for this reason we find that it first began to be spoken of by our Lord for three and a half years he preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand the kingdom of heaven is at hand he was showing them what would happen to them if they rejected the kingdom of heaven and the gospel associated with it, they would be lost forever. So, you see, whatever relationship they might have had in the past, it's not synonymous with salvation for that present, uh, for that particular uh, uh, people at that time, that generation. And then it says, which at the first began to be spoken of, uh, spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by the, them that heard him. Now, who confirmed the message of our Lord Jesus Christ that was preached before the cross, but who confirmed it at Pentecost? It was those that had heard him, the twelve apostles. And for that reason, the message or the commission that was given to the eleven in Matthew, Mark, and Luke was not the gospel commission of the dispensation of grace, but it was the kingdom commission or the gospel of the kingdom commission, and that had to go to the to go to the nation of Israel first and then if Israel had accepted it then it would go farther afield then they could go out to the Samaritans and the Gentile nations surrounding them 
And then it continues and it says, And was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and divers miracles. Now you see the danger that, that traditionalism has created over these two verses? Don't you see why the Pentecostals are looking for signs and wonders and divers miracles and, and gifts of the Holy Ghost? Those days are past. That was only for the nation of Israel. So they will force themselves to think that they are exercising these gifts and that they are really being healed of their many diseases. And a lot of it is nothing else but a bunch of imagination. And we find that right here in this scripture, God is characterizing the early days of the Pentecostal preaching of the gospel of the kingdom by Peter and the other eleven. And this is the way he characterizes it in verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. Never put the dispensation of grace in, in Hebrews chapter 2. We have a great salvation, much greater than the so great salvation that they had. Any salvation is a great salvation. But ours in this dispensation of grace has to do with a heavenly calling. So the moment we are saved by the grace of God, we can accept the truth of Ephesians 2 and 6, and that is that we were raised together with Christ and seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. We're already up there. There is no danger whatever of our losing our salvation. And uh, there would be no danger of these Jews losing theirs. But talking, them, uh, talking to them now, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, he tells them that the devil has a roaring lion, walking, goeth about, seeking whom he may devour. And what he is trying to do is to frustrate the purpose of God. And many of these Jews have been devoured, as it were, by the enemy, by creating seeds of, uh, of uh, what would you call it? the lack of faith, the opposite of faith, disobedience and apostasy in their hearts, and they responded to the growth of that seed in their hearts, and they hardened their hearts, they stoned Stephen in order to emphasize their hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ, went through the whole book of Acts experience, and that would last about 35 or 40 years and got right up to 70 A.D. and persisted in their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about Satan devour them, they did. Satan cannot devour you and he cannot devour me. He cannot devour a single member of the body of Christ. But when you consider the time that Peter is writing and the opportunity that they have of receiving so great a salvation... And there are so very few, relatively speaking, that's accepting that so great salvation. You see where the warning belongs? It belongs with the people of Israel. It doesn't mean that Satan is not our adversary. But it neither doesn't mean that you and I can be devoured by Satan. We are not ignorant of his devices. We know that he is a wily creature. He is a wily spirit. And we must remember that. And he has a way of spoiling our testimony. And he can do a lot of damage. And he has a way of frightening us and intimidating us and so on. But on the other hand, he cannot touch our life in Christ. It is eternal and we thank God for it. In verse 9 it says, Whom resists steadfast in the faith? And it's only by faith they will be able to resist it. First of all, by faith in accepting Peter's message of amnesty, by condemning themselves in their attitude in rejecting Christ and putting him on the cross, repenting from that deed by a public profession of faith in the waters of the baptism of repentance, 
And then also in a coming day, they'll have to resist steadfastly the attempts of Satan uh, who will go about up and down the earth in the various Gentile countries and territories trying to get the people of Israel in the future not to bow to the king. And he knows the king is going to come too. He, he knows a good deal about scripture. He doesn't know all the word, of course. He doesn't know any of its spiritual implication, but he knows the blessing that is going to come to Israel. And in order to frustrate the purpose of God and being glorified among a people who will receive him, he will do everything he possibly can to rob Christ of that glory and cause the hearts of these people to turn from the Lord Jesus Christ to himself. And therefore, it says, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In the future, we find that there are going to be more Jews who will go through the same thing as we have uh, historically uh, given to us, uh, recorded for us in the book of Acts. Because the end of Acts chapter 28 is going to be picked up again in the future. And we find that there, Acts chapter 28, ends with the people of Israel just still uh, refusing Christ as Messiah and King. Uh, that's where it's going to start after the church has run its course. All right, now it says in verse 10, that the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory, and remember that this glory that Peter is talking about is not the glory that you and I are familiar with, a glory that, asso that associates us with a glorified Christ in the heavens. But when you get back to chapter 1, you will see that uh, there is a glory mentioned there. Now let's see, where is it? In verse 7, that the trial of your faith, 1 Peter 1, 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And that's the glory he's talking about. That glory that will be visibly present and visibly seen uh, by the people of Israel. And it will be at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to get the glories now. Uh, some people are going to say, well, Paul talks about glory, Peter talks about glory, so they're talking about the same subject. <laughs> Don't you believe that for one minute, because the glory of Christ and of the church is one thing, the glory of Christ as king over Israel is quite another thing. They might both use the same words, but if you read their context, you will see they have to do with different places, and that's what makes all the difference. That's why it's so necessary to write and divide the word of God. Now, although they are children of the covenant, they would have no particular claim on God's remission of uh, their sin for the particular sin of crucifying Christ uh, without repentance and baptism. That's two things that they would have to go through. So he encourages them to uh, hold on faithfully. In verse 11, it says, well, in verse 10, but uh, the God of all grace. We thank God for the, that he is the God of all grace. You know that nobody has ever been saved apart from grace. It's always been grace. And grace simply means unmerited favor. You can't say that the people of Israel back in the Old Testament were saved by works because of the law, because the law couldn't save to begin with, and nobody could ever keep the law. They weren't saved by virtue of the fact that they had brought sacrifices and so on uh, to the Lord. And uh, we find that that helped to, for the people to see, to show that their faith was in God's word that God had given concerning his son who 
prophetically would be the one of Isaiah 53 who would be numbered with their transgressions on the cross of Calvary. Just how much light they had on that, we don't know. Of course, they couldn't have the same type of light we have because we've got history to prove many of the statements that we today believe, and history will point it out as having been already an accomplished fact. So we find in verse 10 that these Hebrew believers were called to a future glory. Remember that it's not our glory that we are presently associated with in, with Christ in the glory. Uh, it is a future glory, but as the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a while. So we find that suffering is, was still in the program for those people. They were suffering during that time because those who were believers suffered at the hands of the unbelieving element of the people of Israel. Don't forget 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 24, is it? Where it tells us that they suffered of their own countrymen and that was some of the greatest and most difficult type of suffering to pass through. And then in the future, this is rather prophetic as well, because we find that they are going to suffer again during the times of tribulation. And we find that uh, after they have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. And I think in those words, we have that which characterizes the future reign, that which they will be brought into as being saved by uh, repentance and uh, water baptism, undoubtedly in the future as well as in the past. And we find that uh, in verse uh, 10, after they have suffered a while, and that I believe prophetically is pointing to the time of the great tribulation, which will be a terrible time of suffering, but those who pass through it and continue to see by simple faith that Christ is the answer to Israel's problem, that God is going to send him in order to be uh, coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will be Israel's Savior and King. And then, of course, they will be perfect. They will be established. They will be, according to Isaiah chapter 61, all righteous, considered by God to be righteous. They will be perfect. They will be established. They will be strengthened. And they will be settled. And those are characteristic words. I believe of the millennium as well as the peace of heart and conscience that they will have during the closing days of the book of Acts period even though they are made to suffer during that time of uh, the overthrow of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem under Titus, the Roman general, we find that uh, that will be the end for them for a while, but then, of course, they will be raised again to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennium. So then in verse 11, you have a wonderful statement, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, and that's to the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy to be praised. God the Father will be praised and will be worshipped as people worship and praise God the Son. He is the way to God's heart. He is the only way by which people can receive salvation and he's the only way by which people can uh, bring glory to God the Father. And that's always through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between God and man and it's through him that men can worship, that men can be saved and so on. And then in verse 12, we have something a little different. It's a little diversion, I think, of what's uh, gone on before. We find that it says here by Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is Titus. He's not uh, an apostle of the circumcision. I can see 
uh, a lot of people in Christendom today say, well, that's proof, you see. That shows you that the Apostle Peter is writing to the church, the body of Christ. That's not proof of that at all. Suppose you get a little of the background that you have in the, in the New Testament scriptures. Let's turn to Acts chapter 21. Will we please turn to Acts chapter 21? We find that the Hebrew church regarded with great suspicion the work of the Apostle Paul and of the Apostles of the New Testament. Acts chapter 21. And we find that they were very suspicious of them because they believed that they were rather un unorthodox in their doctrine and in their practice. They weren't doing exactly what the Jews were doing. The Jews were still bringing sacrifices and that was permitted of God because God had not brought to an end the dispensation of law. They were under the Ten Commandments and they were under the dietary laws and other laws that regulated the uh, conduct and the life, uh, the religious life and the social life of uh, the nation of Israel. But here we find the uh, Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 21 and he's down there at Jerusalem and it says, and when they heard it in verse 20, and when they heard it they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe and they are all zealous of the law. Now you will get your commentators in order to stick to that uh, untruth that the church started at Pentecost and they say the church started at Pentecost simply because the law came to an end in Christ's death on the cross and there's no scripture to bear that out at all. And so we find that they want to stay with the idea that the church started with Pentecost that Peter's message was to Gentile as well as to the Jew and so on. I hope I know what I'm saying. I got a long sentence there with a few comments. But it says, Thou seest how many thousands of Jews, and what I want to try to say is that uh, in Christendom today you will be told that these Jews were not supposed to be under the law. They were Judaizing or they were legalistic Jews who clung to the law in spite of the fact that it had come to an end. If you think it came to an end in the resurrection of Christ, then why are these people zealous of the law? They had no right being zealous of the law. These Jews are all wrong then. But the Bible doesn't condemn these Jews. It doesn't condemn them at all. And we find that it's in full accordance with Peter's attitude, who for ten years from Pentecost till the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, we find that he was keeping away from any fellowship in any household of Gentiles because it was against the law that a Jew should have anything to do with a Gentile. So 10 years after Pentecost, Peter is awfully slow mentally, isn't he? If he thinks he's still under the law, when he knows, when he's supposed to know as much as our as our preachers know today, that the law was supposed to have come to an end in the resurrection of Christ. How come Peter never knew anything about that? Why did he waste ten years in living a separated life from Gentiles? Would have nothing to do with them, not even to bring the gospel of the kingdom to them. Because when finally the Holy Spirit took a hold of Peter and said, I want you to go to the house of Cornelius, he's a Gentile, and I want you to tell him words by, whereby he must be saved. We find that he was not in agreement with that commission at all. And he had to get going and get over to the house of Cornelius because that's exactly what God wanted. And that's the first Gentile that got the gospel in those whole ten years of Pentecost. In spite of what you might be told by other people today. 
So we find that the Hebrew church regarded these New Testament apostles with a lot of suspicion because of their uh, unorthodox, apparently unorthodox uh, doctrine and practices. And, uh, but we find that the apostle Peter now, did I read enough in Acts chapter 21? Let's go back to 21. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. How would you like to have been the Apostle Paul at that time to face these Jewish people who were under the law? And rightly so. And he's saying that we hear that you are not encouraging Jews who listen to you and to your gospel message to be circumcised and that you don't have to keep the law anymore. And of course, uh, the Apostle Paul, he said that as far as he was concerned, he showed that he was in favor of the law with the Jewish people, but not with Gentiles to bring them under it. But they regarded it very suspiciously. And that's why here we find that the Apostle Peter is doing a lovely thing by saying in verse 12, by Silvanus or Silas, the, those are is the same person as Silas, a faithful brother unto you, as I, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Now, if you had the right Greek and so on, right interpretation of this, and we know that all we have is interpretation from the original manuscripts, what the Apostle Peter is trying to say, that he recommends Silvanus because he is faithful to the ministry, and what he is preaching is the true grace of God, and I exhort you to follow in that condition, in that position, you see. And he is trying to put uh, Steve, uh, uh, Silas in a place in the minds of these Jewish people because before you know it, who's going to be ministering the word to them? Only a few more years, 70 AD will take place, they have no more temple. To whom shall we go will be the big question of the day. Well, there's only one group to listen to now, and that's Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus and Silas, don't you see? And he's saying a kind word to them because soon they won't have Peter and they won't have the apostles of the circumcision, and they won't have God on their side as he would be if Israel had the place before God as a nation that it did have at one time. And so therefore, he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. It doesn't sound right according to the original, which is really telling them, as I said before, that Silvanus represents the true grace of God, and you do well to heed it. And then we get into a couple of closing uh, verses, and there's a good deal of controversy over verse 13, so let's pass it. I'll read it to you, and I'll not try to say what it means because nobody seems to know what it means. The church that is at Babylon elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. I guess Marcus to Peter was like Timothy was to Paul. He says, Marcus, my son. But there is a question as to verse 13, the first half, the church that is at Babylon. Well, we'll not get into that. But verse 14 in closing, it says, Greet ye one another with a kiss of love. That's what the word charity means. Peace with you, be with you, uh, all that are in Christ Jesus. Now, the only way that I can say anything about this kiss of love is, that it's not to be just a formal way of greeting. But if it is a token of expression, when one meets a person and greets that person with a, a 
a visible kiss or whatever you want to call it. Let it be really a kiss of love. Let your love be without dissimulation is what the Apostle Peter says, Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or Romans chapter 12 verse 9 rather. Let your love be without dissimulation. Don't let it be a piece of hypocrisy. Can't you see some people, oh I'm so glad to see you. You know, and there's nothing to it. Just a bunch of hypocrisy. They wish that they weren't there at all, but they have to go through that piece of formality in order to put a show on. Now, all Peter is saying, now don't let it be that way at all. He says, if you're going to kiss them at the time that you greet them, let it be a heartfelt love and not something hypocritical. Well, we thank God for these little... (laughs) little sidelights in Peter's uh, divinely inspired word because after all it shows God doesn't want any hypocrisy. He hates a show. He wants us to be real. So in a very good way I think we can be real with each other since we don't practice this particular way. I know there are companies of Christians who greet each other. Men greet men and women with women. The men don't greet the women that way and the women don't greet the men. And I think that's the unfair part of the whole thing. If they're going to practice it doesn't say you have to separate the sexes. So if they're going to have it at all, let them all have it together. (laughs) But uh, I don't agree with that form of uh, greeting. I think it's just fine the way we do it. Shake hands. If you don't like shake hands, don't shake hands. But let your greeting be genuine after all. Whatever you do, let it not be hypocritical. Well, that's what that's all about. So we're finished with 1 Peter, and we'll get into 2 Peter, the Lord willing, next Sunday morning. And I think we'll have a few good chapters in 2 Peter.